go ahead and have a seat, everybody. Good morning. Happy Father's Day. So glad you're here. I, I was out in the lobby, and people were coming up to me, and ladies were coming up to me, and they're like, Happy Father's Day. And I'm like, you too. Never mind. I don't. It was awkward. So if I made you feel awkward, I apologize. Um, happy Father's Day. We're glad you're here. Um, dads, if you're here, man, you, I mean, it's, it's tough to get dads to church on Father's Day. It's, it's usually kind of like, hey, leave me alone. Um, I'm not going anywhere. Um, where's my bacon? And so, but you're here, and which we're, we're so glad you're here. Um, Father's Day is just like Mother's Day. It comes with um, just some great celebration, some great joy, and also at times just some, some pain and some um, longing. And so I know some of you in the room have lost uh, dads this year. Um, maybe, maybe this is our Father's Day tribute, Liquid Light Show. What in the world? Um, some of you, I think so. I think that's my cue to get down. Um, so some of you, uh, you know, maybe you're estranged from your dad. And uh, so this is kind of a weird day. And, and we get that. So when you walked in today, there was probably some mixed emotions. Um, you know, it's interesting. Scripture has this, uh, this picture of God as father. And sometimes that's hard for us to wrestle with. Um, Jesus called God the Father, um, and, and, and then he's, he told us how to pray. Um, and in that Lord's Prayer, he said, pray like this, our Father, who art in heaven. And sometimes that language is really tough for us, um, and for some of you in this room, um, especially tough. And we just want to acknowledge that. And yet, that yet at the same time, there's just so much a richness to the language of God being our father and God really being the right father, the ultimate father, the full unconditional loving father. And, and if you've never experienced that, my, my hope is, is that today um, that would be really part of your faith step. And so today, thank you for coming. Thanks for being here, dads. Um, I just wanted to catch you guys up on a couple of things and then we're going to do something special today. We have some, some young families here and we're going to dedicate um, and just kind of bring before you their kids and their willingness to be parents um, within a community, a faith community. And so we're going to do that here. But I just want to give you a little bit of an update on our children's uh, ministry and our children's program. Um, Shalene and the Miller family uh, left us uh, despite us slashing their tires in the middle of the night. They drove to Arkansas. Um, they made it, and uh, they are unpacking and uh, kind of settling into their new world in Arkansas. And so for some of you, you've been asking, okay, what's next? What are we going to do? Um, how are we going to fill Shalene's role as the director of our children's ministry? And so uh, we've been in prayer about that. We've been uh, just strategizing and dreaming and praying. And um, and really, we're kind of, uh, we're getting together this week as a leadership team to talk some more about that. But uh, what I want you to know is that we haven't forgotten about it. Um, we're not panicked, we're not freaking out, because we have a tremendous volunteer team. And if you work in children's, um, obviously not today, because they're next door, but if you work in children's, we are so thankful for you. We're so thankful for your heart and your passion for our kids. We're so thankful for your dedication. Um, and so we are gonna continue to operate as, as a volunteer team um, with some help from the rest of the staff 
um, over the next number of weeks and months as, as God kind of forms what he wants to do next. And so just so you know, we, we would encourage you to be a part of praying for that, uh, for rooting on our children's team. Um, if you want to encourage them in any way, you are welcome to do so. Also, if you want to be a part of it, you're welcome to do so. Summer's tricky. People travel. And so it would be great to give some people a break. So if you'd like to step in even for a week or two, uh, we'd love to have you. So can I, do, uh, can I just ask that our couples that are dedicating their kids come up? I know they're squirrely already. So um, I want to invite up Max uh, and Janice Neal, and this is Griffin. And then I want to in- invite up Michael and Julie Bonama and Kayla. And I'll just have you guys come, come closer over here. Oh, there you guys. You guys never mind. Come, come this way. As you can tell, we rehearsed. <laughs> and so um, this is just a, a, just a powerful time, um, really, as a community. And uh, come on, Griff. Come on, man. It just started. Wait till I hold you. Yeah. <laughs> Not going to happen? Okay. Well, we'll see. Um, we're told in 1 Samuel chapter 1 that Hannah brought Samuel to the Lord and dedicated him. We're told in in Luke chapter 2 that Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to the temple. And this was a a significant act. This was an act that that the people were a part of, that the community was about, bringing their children when they were born before the Lord. And so Griffin doesn't like anything to do with that. Um, And so I want to call our attention to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 6, and it says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Yeah, you're going to go get back up, aren't you? He's fine. He's, this is the important part. Listen to this. These commandments I give to you today are to be put upon your hearts. And then he says, impress them on your children. This is what God says. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. So basically what God's saying is talk about them all the time. From the beginning of the day to the end of the day. Whether you're going somewhere, whether you're together as a family, whatever you do, talk about these together. And so what we want to do today is just simply acknowledge the fact that These gifts, these children are just ultimately, they're gifts from God. They're beautiful gifts from God. And what this means is, is we, our kids are are gifts and we just hold them loosely. They're they're not ours, they're God's. And this is the intentionality behind that is standing before you today as a community of faith and saying, we're going to do this. And so Max and Janice and Michael and Julie Our prayer for you today is that you as parents would vow by God's help and in partnership with this place, Restoration, to to provide a committed home of love and peace, to raise these guys in the truth of our Lord's instruction and discipline, and to encourage them to one day trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. Will you be a part of that?
Okay, it's your turn, church. Would you, uh, actually, would you do this? Will you stand up here for this? And some of you are like, man, I'm new here. I'm not going to pledge anything. But here's, here's for, if you call this your church home, I ask that you would make the following commitment before God and those who stand before you, these two couples, that little Kayla and little Griffin may walk in the abundant life that Christ offers. Do you vow by God's help to be a faithful community of Christ? To be faithful to help teach and train them in the ways of the Lord that they might one day trust him as Savior and Lord. If that's something that you want to be a part of, would you say yes? Let me pray for these guys. And, And let's see if this works. This is Griffin, everybody. God, thank you so much for this guy. He's full of life. We just love who you are creating him to be. We pray, God, that one day your love would would penetrate his heart so much that he would choose to follow you. We thank you for Max and Janice. We ask that you give them the strength and the joy and the courage to follow you in raising Griffin. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. You did it. You did it. Right on, Griff. What do you, what do you think my chances are? Pray for Kayla. God, thank you so much for Kayla. Thank you so much for her smile and her heart. Thank you so much for Julie and Michael. Here we go. (laughs) We just pray that you would give her the joy and the love of following you one day. That she would sense, even as she's a little child, that she would just sense your love manifest through her parents, even. And God, that she would one day choose to follow you. We pray for Michael and Julie that they would just uh, just love on her and show her what it means to follow you and that they would continue to be a part of this place and um, surround themselves with people who want to be a part of that. And so, God, we pray these things in your name. Amen. Will you give these guys a hand today? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and do me a favor, while you're standing, say hi to someone next to you, and we'll keep, keep on heading through the service. Okay, good to see everybody. If you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you to grab one. We've got a stack of them. They're, they're literally steps away from you. So if you would like a Bible, feel free to grab one. You, you all feel free to get up and get donuts and coffee anyway, so just get a Bible. A um, couple last-minute announcements here. Pub chat this week for the fellas. Ladies night is Tuesday night too as well. So these are two great opportunities for you to get to know some people around here in a very low, in, uh, you know, intensity. Um, you can get to know some folks. Uh, two real quick things. One, it's the month of June. We've been gathering um, now um, in this space in this new uh, area here of the Arvada Center for a, a couple of months now. And as some of you know. Um, this this room costs us a little bit more money, and so 
just want to encourage you, it's June, it's um, time when people go on vacation, things like that. We love the fact that you vacation, that's awesome, keep on doing it. Um, but we still need your help financially, and so here we are in June, it is uh, halfway through June, and for the year, um, as it, our budget, we're a little behind, not like panicking behind, but we are behind. And so if you call this your church home, um, if you've just kind of been gone and whatever, maybe kind of need to catch up on some things, if you want to be a part of that financially, we would encourage you to keep doing that. And so there's a great way to give online, even if you are vacationing. So that would be really helpful as we are kind of a month-to-month joint. Um, so thank you for that. Also, last thing, um, I would love to guilt some of you into joining our roadie crew. Um, if you haven't noticed, this is in our building. We set it up. Um, not the building, but um, this just this stuff right here um, doesn't take too long. It takes a crew of three or four of us about 45 minutes um, to set up and tear down the commitments once a month. I know it's really, um, I'm killing you with that commitment. So, um, But we could use some people on the first Sunday and the second Sunday. So if you're interested in that, you can even try it. And if you don't like it, um, we'll, we'll shame you for a while, but we'll let you out of it. Um, you know I'm joking, right? Um, if you're new, you need to learn that I'm probably a little sarcastic. So Ruth, chapter one, if you need a Bible, grab one. Let me pray and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, um, today is one of those days where I think we're all faced with the choice that we have in our lives, the choice we have to step out in faith um, or the choice we have to fall, find an, an alternative solution to faith. So God, help us to reflect on our own lives and that for some of us, maybe we're in a moment right now where faith seems illogical and impractical. And God, maybe this today, this 3,000-year-old story could remind us that faith is impractical and many times illogical. But there's more to it if we press into it. And so this morning, God, just settle our hearts and our minds and let us wander freely through these pages of Ruth. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Okay, so Ruth chapter one, if you missed last week, I I can't recap it all. Um, Just suffice it to say that I just want to remind you that this is a wholly different culture than the one that we currently live in. And so sometimes it's really difficult for us to put our heads around and our hearts around what's happening in the book of Ruth. We really don't understand some of the language and the context. We really don't understand... Um, these two different worlds, Israel and Moab, and it's just really hard for us sometimes to gather um, some of these bits and pieces. But I want to encourage us to not Americanize this story. I think we have a lens sometimes that we read some uh, scripture and we kind of, we read it through the eyes of being an American. Not that being an American is bad. It's not. I'm just saying that sometimes we read Scripture from the eyes of a 21st century American consumer. And this story is wholly different from that. This account of Ruth is so different. And so what we have to do is we have to immerse ourselves 
in the culture of the Middle East and then go back in time 3,000 years, <laughs> which is hard to do. And we're never going to be able to do it perfectly. But just imagine a, a day and age where there's no electricity, where you fetch your own water, where the fa fastest transportation is a horse. And if you were rich, you had one. And if you weren't, you didn't. In fact, you were pretty well off at, at this time during a famine if you had a donkey. Women and children and older parents were part of the workforce. Everybody worked. Everybody tried to make things work for the family. The man was the undisputed uh, dance queen. Um, the man was the undisputed leader of the household. Um, I'm so distracted by what's behind me. Wife, uh, the wife and children were possessions. Unfortunately, that's how it was. The 24-hour day was divided into two parts, daylight and dark. When it was light out, you worked. When it was dark, you slept. Your big meal of the day came after dark. And the rest of the day, you just ate as you went. There were four seasons in the year, and each season dictated what you did. Fall was different than spring. Winter was different than summer. 95% of your food was raised on your own. Everything was organic. Everything was local. If it wasn't grown or raised within a mile or two or three, you didn't have it. And it's a time in history when one dry season meant hunger pains. Two dry seasons meant real fear. And three dry seasons meant disaster. And that's just how it was. And you survived as a family. You survived as a clan. And so last week, we learned that this story took place in the time of the judges. And at the end of the book of Judges, there's this line that kind of gives us an idea of what that time was like. Judges chapter 21, verse 25, it says this, In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. We talked last week about a cycle that the people were in. And over hundreds of years, this cycle perpetuated seven, eight times. That they would be close to God, and then they would draw further away from God, and they would take God for granted, and then they would try to do things on their own, and then they'd start worshiping other idols, and then they would really be in a, a pickle. And then they would come back to God, and then this cycle would start over again. But we don't know what that's like, right? We have no idea what that's like. And if you had a husband, you were in pretty good shape. And if you had sons, you were even in better shape. And everything was tied to the land. And last week we talked about this. The first five books of the book of Ruth are all about names and places. And it doesn't end pretty in the first five verses. The last verse ends with Ruth. Her husband had already died. 
Her sons had married Moabite women, and then her sons, after 10 years of marriage and no offspring, they die, and their names mean sick and dying. Her sons, sick and dying, die. And Naomi was left without. She was left without. What's interesting is this book is about women. And for us, that doesn't seem interesting, really, um, when you think about it, because we have a lot of great stories in our culture with the main characters being women. I mean, Disney stories are huge. And, 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 but in the ancient Near East, in this time, okay, 3,000 years ago, you would be hard-pressed to find any story about women. They just weren't the focus of the story. And this one is a story of women who are heroes. You have Naomi, who's a Jewish woman, and then you have two daughters-in-law who are full Moabite women, which is a big deal. Now, we're used to Disney stories. We're used to Disney stories where there was the pretty princess and somebody comes and rescues her from the tower kind of stories. Or in Disney movies, There's like the big ogre queen that's the bad woman. And so we're trying to fit, sometimes we try to fit these biblical accounts into Disney paradigms, and it just doesn't work. Evangelical Christianity has often painted this story of Ruth as merely a love story. And we're going to get to a point where, yeah, it's pretty powerful. And there's there's this man who's named Boaz, and he's called the kinsman redeemer, and we We'll talk about that down the road, but I want to surprise you a little bit because I, I, I listened to an author talk about the book of Ruth. And she, she kind of claims that this book actually should be called Naomi, not Ruth. And this Naomi character, she's a pretty, she's a pretty interesting character. And she's not perfect. And we're actually going to find out that today that she's pretty imperfect. That she's got some ulterior motives, that she's trying to hedge her own bets as she heads back to Israel. So if you have a Bible, Ruth chapter 1, verse 6. Um, here we are in, in, a, in a culture, in a time where she is in Moab. Uh, she married her, her sons married Moabite women, which in many ways was kind of a no-no. Now, I don't know if you know where the Moabites came from, but if you've ever read Genesis chapter 19, it's just some light reading. Um, I remember talking to a guy earlier, uh, earlier this year, and um, he was, he's seeking, he's kind of like starting to read the Bible a ton, and um, we're having conversations, and I get a text on a Saturday morning, and he's like, dude, what is the deal with Genesis 19? Like, help me out with that. And if you're not familiar with Genesis 19, oh, yeah. I mean, it is the Jerry Springer chapter of Genesis. It is ugly. There are, there's just things we're not going to get into today. But one of the things that happens in Genesis 19 is they're fleeing Lot and his wife and his daughters are fleeing Sodom and Gomorrah and the, the um, the judgment that's coming on Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and Lot's wife turns around and, and turns to salt, uh, which is this weird deal. Um, and, and Lot and his daughters make it 
to the cave. And his daughters make a choice while their father is uh, sleeping and drunk. Well, he sleep, while he's sleeping, they decide to get him drunk because they're looking around and they're like, everybody's dead. We're never going to get married. We're not going to have offspring. And so they get drunk and they um, have sex with their dad. Happy Father's Day. And um, to have offspring. They freak out and they take life into their own hands. Instead of waiting on the promises of God and waiting on what God's going to do, they decide to take matters into their own hands. And the oldest daughter's son, they named Moab. And the youngest one, they named Amnon. Amnon. And, and so what we get is the race of the Moabites and the Ammonites. Fun stuff. And during the time of the judges, the Moabites are actually kind of a big deal. There's a king in Moab, and he kind of impress, uh, oppresses the people of Israel. And, and so the fact of the matter is, is that Naomi and her husband leave Israel, and they go to Moab. They leave Israel, they leave the promised land, and they go to Moab because they think it's going to be better for them there. And we talk about this word sojourn last week, and it meant that they were just going to be there temporarily, just to see what would happen, to see if the grass was greener in Moab. And it turns out it's not. And they go there, and Elimelech dies, and her sons die. In verse 6, we see what Naomi decides to do. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. Now, I want to show you the map again of this area because I think it's really important. So you've got um, the people of Israel. You've got Bethlehem up there. Um, that's the town she's from. And she went around to Moab, around the, the bottom of the, the Dead Sea to Moab. Now, let me just tell you a little bit that th this is a pretty important journey. It's about a 10-day journey. There are three women. They decide to set out on a journey, a 10-day journey walking. They have nothing from Moab to Bethlehem because they heard news that God is providing for the people of Israel. Now, I don't know about you, but there's, there's times in your lives when you feel the distance between the people that you love. Maybe you feel the distance between you and your homeland and you wish you could visit. Um, and there's something in you where you're just not even feeling whole, that you're, you're ripped away from the people that you love. And there's something in Naomi that stirs when she hears this news. That stirs when she hears the news that God is providing for her people. And she's like, I need to get back there. I need to go back no matter what the cost. And so it says in verse 7, with her two daughters-in-law, they left the place where they had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Well, let me just tell you about this road that would take them back to the land of Judah. This road is probably one of the lowest places geographically on earth. This road around the bottom of the Dead Sea is low. If you've ever been there or if you've been to somewhere like Death Valley or something like that, there is a very desolate place. I mean, it's not only the lowest place geographically, but for Naomi, it was probably one of the lowest places in her, of her life. Because on this journey, 
I don't know how far they got, but they had already left Moab. They had gone for a certain amount of, of miles, and Naomi had been holding it all together, okay? She's trying to be strong for the family, trying to be strong for her daughter-in-laws. She's just lost both of her sons. She has no offspring. They haven't had kids. They've been married for like 10 years, no kids. She's lost her husband. There's grief. She's in a foreign country. She's burdened with the fate of her two daughter-in-laws that are her responsibility now. And her only hope is the kindness of the people in Bethlehem. Her only hope is to take that journey back. And this is where she loses it. And we can't blame her. It says, then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye. This symbol of goodbye, this symbol of a kiss goodbye, it was kind of like a release of their duty and their obligation to have to come with her. They're duty bound, married to her sons, to follow her in her journey back to her homeland. And she is trying to release them from their obligation to follow her. Now, I don't fully subscribe to this belief that Naomi is altogether pure in her motives right now. I think there's a part of Naomi, let's just be honest. She left her people in Israel. She left and said, no, Moab's going to probably be better for us. There, there's a certain stigma when you leave your land. You leave not only your land, but you leave your people and you leave your God. And she, you know, she may have, obviously there's this hierarchy with her husband. Her husband probably made the call. She felt like she had to go along. But there's something in her that feels a little bit of shame in this. And for her to walk back into Bethlehem, without her husband, without her sons, and two Moabite women in her care. With the stigma of that, not only are they Moabite, but they are childless. And if you are childless, it means that God has not blessed you. And so here she is, she's um, on this journey, she's less Moab, trying to get back, and I'm just speculating here that she's trying to show up in Bethlehem without a whole bunch of baggage. Maybe. Maybe she is pure of heart. Maybe she just really does want to release them. Maybe she's saying, though, I can't go back there like this. They will never welcome me back there with two Moabite daughter-in-laws. How am I going to feed their, their mouths, let alone mine? And they're never going to have a chance to have kids. So, sorry. I don't know if we need to do something. I'm just going to like start throwing lights around. It's going to get crazy up here. But you can imagine this is a very human feeling, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but maybe you've been a part of church circles before or you've been a part of a church in your life and then, and then you kind of went away for a while. 
and you went away for a while and you kind of lived life. Maybe you went off to college. Maybe you, uh, you know, maybe you just kind of felt some distance between uh, the church community and yourself. And entering back into that had that bring a ton of anxiety. Maybe some of you are here with family and friends. Maybe this is your first time. And you feel a little bit of anxiety even being in a church again because you know what your life has been. You know what decisions you've made. You know what kind of compromises you've made in your life. And you feel that everybody is going to judge that. Everybody is going to uh, ask you to, to, to figure, get your stuff together before you make it back. I'm sure Naomi is feeling this. And it's a natural thing. You know, this idea of returning is a really powerful one. In fact, in this chapter, it's the word uh, that, that is used for return is actually used 12 times to return. One of the reasons why we named our church Restoration is because of the definition of the word restoration. I just want to show this to you. The first one is to return uh, the return of something to its former owner, place, or condition. Man, it's just such a powerful thing, right? To restore something is to bring it back, to return it to how it was meant to be. And there's just a lot of returning used in this language. In fact, Ruth wants her daughter-in-laws to return to their homeland, to return back to, to where they came and she wants to release them. It says that she kissed them goodbye and then it says they wept aloud and said to her, we will go back with you to your people. This idea that no, 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 we're coming with you. We're coming with you. But then Naomi doubles down and she kind of begins to paint a picture and to just to lay it out real, real, real for them about what this looks like for them. She says this, but Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Which is a weird phrase. We'll get into that. Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? Now, this is the part of the culture that we go, what? See, for us, in America, we have options, right? I mean, look at our culture when it comes to marriage. I mean, if it's not working out, get out of it. Try again. There's dating sites, and there's this, and that. That's our culture. This culture... This is the law of leveret marriage, meaning that for a clan and a family to survive and to thrive, if a husband died, typically what would happen is, in Israel especially, is you would marry, you would be given in marriage to your husband's brother. And there, <laughs> I know, right? Some of you are like, that doesn't feel very Father's Day-ish either. Um, but you're just like looking, thinking about that and you're like, ah, I don't know. But, but in, 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 the, in the form of a clan surviving and a people that was just living hand to mouth and farming and, and, and trying to make this happen, that's just how they did it. In, in Deuteronomy 25, this is kind of the, the call, the plea to uh, the people of Israel to, to make this a part of their, uh, their living. And she's saying, this, this isn't going to happen to you. I mean, even if I had sons, even if I was married tonight and had sons, would you wait? 
Remember, they've already gone 10 years being married and they haven't had kids. She's like painting this picture. It's not going to happen. It's not going to work. She says, no, my daughters, this is more bitter for me than you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. She's saying, listen, if you come with me, it's not going to be pretty. It's like that motivational speaker that you're going to be living in a van down by the river. I mean, you're, it's not going to go well. I'm trying to keep you from going this direction. She's saying at least you have a chance. All you have to do is turn around. All you have to do is stop following me. You can go back to your people. You can go back to your gods. I have nothing to show for my life is what she's saying. I have been taught that God was compassionate and merciful, but all he's shown me is bitterness. I'm at the end of my rope. So these women are given this choice. And at this, it says in verse 14, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, and Ruth clung to her. So two different women, same circumstance. They're both from Moab. They're both uh, widows. They're both childless. And they're both presented the same option. Go back to your people. Please go back. Or this unknown option, which is continuing on with Naomi. And Ruth clings and Orpah goes back. And who can blame Orpah, right? Right? See, I think a lot of times we think to these two and we're like, man, that Orpah, what a, what a jerk. I mean, think about it, though. I bet you most of us would have done what Orpah did. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, actually, when you put it that way, yeah, I'm going to, you know, I mean, can you think about it? Like, they're in the middle of nowhere in the lowest part geographically in the world, in their lowest place. They both lost their husbands, and they're, they're, they're given kind of a pros and cons list by Naomi, and it's all cons. And Orpah's like, yeah, you're right. I think I'm going, <laughs> she's like, I think I'm going back, you know, just... I can't blame Orpah. Following Naomi doesn't seem very practical. It doesn't seem very pragmatic. In fact, this whole Yahweh thing isn't really working for me. Because as much as I've been exposed to this Yahweh so far, Orpah's thinking, uh, my father-in-law died and my husband died and my brother-in-law died. That doesn't seem like a really good fit for me, right? I mean, when she thinks about it, I could go back to my gods. Now, going back to Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, hmm. I mean, let's, let's look at this clown, okay? This, this god, Chemosh, here's what was required of you. Your firstborn would be sacrificed to the god. Your firstborn. Girl or boy, Sacrifice to Chemosh, and there would be some dancing, and there would be some, it would be quite a ceremony. And this God was pretty, pretty brutal. I mean, if you were the firstborn 
living kid in a Moabite family, you knew that your older brother or sister wasn't around and you knew why. And so here's Orpah. Should I go with Yahweh or should I go with Chemosh? Well, I know I'm going to have to give my firstborn away to Chemosh, but it still seems better. Still seems more practical. It still seems more pragmatic to go this route. And then Naomi tries to shake Ruth one last time in verse 15. She says, look, Naomi said, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. You should go with her. Run along. It'd probably be better if you guys traveled together, you know. Um, not that you're going to be uh, super intimidating together, but um, it might be better if you do that. And then Ruth replies, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Ruth's level of commitment is pretty mind-blowing. What you don't hear Ruth say is, hey, let's go see what happens. Let's go, let's go see if this is a good option. Let's go see if we can make something happen up in Bethlehem. No, Ruth says, knock it off. Naomi, I'm coming. You can't say anything to stop me. I'm committed to you. And not only am I committed to you, I'm committed to your people. I haven't even met them yet. I'm committed to them. I'm committed to your God. Not only am I committed to you and your people and your God, I'm committed to you long past when you die. In fact, when you die, I'm still going to be there with your people and your God. Past death. We do till death do do us part. We do that in marriage ceremonies. Ruth takes it way past that. She's like, I'm committed to this thing all the way past, all the way through death. And she even curses upon herself if she fails to live up to this covenant she's making, which is a classic covenant. This covenant that she has made with Naomi is big. It is bold. It is insane. We just need to take note of the fact that Ruth has chosen to permanently leave her homeland and her family and embrace Israel, the Israelites, and this God of the Israelites, Yahweh. She's making this vow. And it reminds me of a promise and a covenant that God made with Abraham. See, back in Genesis chapter 12, God made a covenant with Abraham. And in verse 1 of chapter 12, it says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go out from your country, 
your relatives, your father's household, to the land I will show you. And in verse 2 it says, Then I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will exemplify divine blessing. I will bless those who bless you, but in the one who treats you lightly, I will curse. And all the families of the earth will bless one another by your name. And so there's this idea that the same language Ruth is using in this covenant to Naomi, I'm leaving my father's household, my family, I'm leaving my land, I'm leaving all of this to come with you. And what's interesting is I actually think that Ruth has more faith than Abraham. Because Abraham's given a promise. He's actually given, like, here's what happens if you do what I say. And Ruth's not given that promise at all. I actually think that Ruth has a little bit bigger faith than Jacob. Jacob actually uses manipulation to get what he wants. And I think she has better faith than David even, where David's given some promises and some, some um, covenant uh, as well, but David doesn't really hold to a, a strict moral high ground at all. Nehemiah's uh, blessing comes from, like, he's got uh, a, a rich king bankrolling this endeavor. Ruth has nothing. Ruth is a foreigner, a Moabite, a widow, and she's poor. And she makes a covenant with Naomi that is far bigger of a faith statement than any of these guys I've listed, any of these men I've listed. It's fantastic. She rejects Chemosh. She chooses Yahweh. Now, as we wrap this up today, I just want to just lay out a couple things. I think for us, we're given a lot of choices when it comes to faith. Pragmatism is an approach to life that assesses truth and it assesses the meaning of, of theories and belief, okay? And, and it and assesses all those things in terms of whether they're practical or not, whether there's a practical application or not. That's pragmatism. Meaning, okay, does this work for me? Does this church thing, does this Jesus thing work for me? Does it does it, does it fix things in my life? Does it, does it make my life work? Is it practical? <coughs> Another label for pragmatism is doing what's right, it, it, what seems right in your own eyes. Does that f- sound familiar? This is the culture of the day. We weigh our options And the things that bring us the most benefit end up being the things that we move towards. It's pragmatism. The reality is, folks, we have options. And they may not be as uh, stark and as bleak as being on a lonely, desolate road and choosing to go one direction to Israel or back to Moab. It may not be like that. They may be a little bit more subtle than that. But I think for many of us, we're, we're forced to and we're given the choice of what is it that I'm going to uh, give my life allegiance to. And if I'm honest, that happens daily. It happens over and over and over again. 
You know what's interesting is the book of Ruth starts with a list of names and it ends with a list of names. I don't know if you notice this. The list of names we talked about last week, Elimelech and Mahlon and Kilion and Bethlehem and Moab and Ruth, whose name means pleasant, by the way. And then you have Orpah and you have, uh, sorry, Naomi means pleasant, by the way, and, and Ruth. And, and you have these names. And at the end of the book, you have a genealogy. And this genealogy is this profound glimmer of hope. Without giving away the rest of the story, Ruth does have offspring. And her offspring has offspring. And the lineage goes and goes and goes until Jesus. And it's a beautiful story that in the genealogy of Jesus is a Moabite woman, a Gentile, an outsider, a foreigner. A foreigner that had so much faith that she chose unpractically to follow her mother-in-law to a foreign country. <coughs> and then you have Orpah. And no one can blame Orpah, right? I mean, we were looking at the pros and cons, right? So just a couple of reflections on this this morning. Ruth had no idea what would happen to her. And we have no idea what happened to Orpah. It could be that Orpah went back, got married, had a bunch of kids, minus one. But hey, it might have been great. She may have looked back and go, man, that was the greatest decision I ever made. I wonder what happened to Naomi and Ruth. Who knows? And Ruth had no idea what would happen to her. Somehow, Ruth had been captured by this God of Israel. Somehow, Ruth had been captured by Yahweh. And somehow, Ruth made an unexplainable, unpredictable covenant with this woman, Naomi, and to this God. And then one of her lowest points, and I see this all the time with people, sometimes in our lowest points, we are being pulled and we are being drawn into this unexplainable relationship with God. And we can't explain it. We can't put words to it. But we just know that there's this instant in our lives where we have to respond in that way. and We have to turn our hearts towards Yahweh. Jesus would say this all the time to his father. He would, he would, he would ask his disciples to follow me. He says, come follow me. He didn't lay out what their life would look at. He, he didn't give them promises. He didn't bait and switch. He didn't gimmick them. He just said, follow me. And there was something in who he was and his character and, and, and who he meant to the people around him that, that brought people into following him. Let me just tell you this. Following this whole faith thing, it's not practical. It's not pragmatic. And many times it, it seems kind of silly. It seems kind of like if you were to throw this up on the wall, this pros and cons of following Jesus, well, 
mean, if we really were weighing in our options, I mean, we do this every day, right? There's this idea of, of laying our life down and surrendering and yet picking things up and doing things on our own. There's this idea of taking things over in our lives and, and making things happen um, out of our own power and our own will that actually gives us into trouble. It actually brings more pain in our life. I, I meet with a lot of people who are struggling with faith. They're frustrated. They look at scripture. They look at these stories. They look at the outcomes and they go, that seems crazy. Why would, why would I do that? Why would I align myself? Why would I call Jesus king? Why would I, why would I align myself? So some people are like maybe waiting for this whole thing to make sense and make sense and fit and, and, and make logical sense and make practical sense. I'm going to just tell you something. It won't. It never will. And if I told you from stage that it one day would, I would be lying to you. I would be preaching a different gospel. Following Jesus is a step of faith. It is crazy. It will cost you. And people will probably look at you and go, you're nuts. You're dumb. You're actually intellectually ill-equipped, they'll say. And what we cling to is this idea of Ruth. That Ruth, faced with either or, chose the unexplainable and made a covenant. May your people be my people. May your God be my God. And then they kept walking and walking and walking. And next week, we're going to talk about what happens when they show up in Bethlehem. But she's made a covenant. She has a new people. And you know what? These people, they probably wouldn't even say, oh, you're one of ours. You've made us your people, but we haven't made you our people. And so wherever you are today, maybe you're feeling the what have I done. Maybe you're feeling that kind of feeling you get when you don't feel like you totally belong in a place based on your life, your circumstances, your past. I don't know where you're at. I don't know whether you're waiting for it all to make sense and to fit and be practical and logical. I just want to encourage you. There's a way to step forward here in faith that gives that gives you the courage and the beauty of following a God that doesn't totally make sense. But we can trust in who this God promises. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, this morning, this is uh, it's important for us to see this story in a new, fresh way. And God, it wouldn't be faith if it was practical, and it wouldn't be faith if it was logical, and it wouldn't be faith if it made sense. And here we're given a beautiful illustration of exactly that. And we don't judge Orpah. We don't blame Orpah. We, we, we probably, many of us probably go, yeah, I get her. And probably seemed pretty smart in the moment. And God, a lot of us have made what we thought were pretty smart in the moment decisions. 
maybe some of us have been churchgoers for a while in our lives, and we came to the conclusion at some point that this really isn't working. God, it seems like following you just leads me into one disaster and tragedy after another. And I actually can count all the, all the wounds and the pain following you more than the blessings. But what's interesting, God, is that your son could probably say the same thing. That Jesus shows up on earth and lives a life that ultimately ends in a lot of pain, tragedy, and rejection. And he did it for us. And so somewhere in that exchange, somewhere in that mystery, we can find enough faith not reasons or logic, but faith to follow you, to make commitments to you, to look around us and say, these are my people and you are my God. And I'm gonna trust it. And I'm gonna keep walking. And even if it all hasn't unveiled itself and the, and the future plans, the promises haven't come yet, God, will you give us strength? And God, for anybody today, for maybe the first time or the fifth time or the tenth time, or just needs to renew that promise and that, that covenant with you, you are my God. And I will go where you go. And we make that today.